Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, I will talk about the Democrats' primary problem and what it reveals about their idea of diversity. Marco Rubio has a new pro-life strategy. Will it work? The White House doubles down on a story it knows is false, and the soap opera known as the U.S. House continues its gut-wrenching story. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining me live on YouTube and on Facebook this morning. We appreciate all that. Please uh, pass the word along that this program is available live, 7.30 to 8.30, Monday through Friday, with a few exceptions when I have to travel to Columbia early, but most of the time. And it's also available as a podcast at Spotify and Apple Podcasts and anywhere you go to look for podcasts. I apologize for yesterday's show. I didn't get up and get it up until late. Um, or get it posted, not yesterday's show, day before yesterday. I actually put up two shows almost back-to-back because I grabbed my computer to head out to Columbia for a, a fairly early meeting and uh, thought I had everything that I could. When I got down there, I could just go ahead and load the uh, podcast, put it up, and uh, realized that I, couldn't, I didn't have the editing software on that computer uh, to get the show in, into a, a place, into the right format so that I could upload it. Anyway, that's technical stuff that you probably didn't need to know. But uh, it keeps you, kind of explains why the show was late getting to the podcast the other day. All right, a couple of things from here in South Carolina before we move on to national news. Um, the spotlight's going to be on South Carolina. Always, always, uh, already is, really. Um, in some, to some degree, our primary is February 24th. We've got New Hampshire coming up. And New Hampshire is where a lot of the attention is right now. But in the South Carolina legislature yesterday, <clears throat> there was an important vote on um, uh, H4624, which is the Do No Harm bill. And after a lot of debate and Republicans standing firm and voting down amendment after amendment, um, the measure passed yesterday, the House, and will, uh, or at least, at least second reading, I guess this would have been second reading. Uh, it'll go up for third reading. It, it was 82 to 23, I believe, was the final tally. So overwhelming vote to protect minors from gender-altering surgery and from puberty blockers, which, you know, there's more and more information coming out now about puberty blockers, about the long-term effects and the fact that, you know, one of the things that was said about the puberty blockers early on is we, you, we can use them because the effects can be reversed um, it, they it, you use the puberty blockers while a person is kind of making their decision about which way they want to go with their gender, and then um, then then they can just you can kind of turn it off. And it's it, it's there's research now that suggests that it's not that easy to just turn off a puberty blocker and to get things back to where they were. So or to reverse the effects long term. And so it, it, as these questions continue to rise, I think it's more important than ever. Uh, that we have laws that protect minors. Again, adults, um, I, I, I think, uh, obviously, um, I don't agree with the transgender ideology. 
I, I agree with the scripture as a born again, believer, born again believer, somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Um, I believe that God created male and female and that we're not supposed to mess with that. And when, when you think about what transgen transgender surgery accomplishes and all the puberty blockers and all the cross-hormone treatments, I mean, you're actually altering the way that we were made at a, at a fundamental level. Now, you can't alter it all the way down to the genetic level because that's just not possible. But you can do cosmetic things that require a lifetime of maintenance to give the appearance that your gender is not doesn't match your biological sex. Uh, but these are cosmetic and, the, and fundamentally at a, um, at, at a DNA level, um, at, at a chromosomal level, it, it, you can't actually change from one gender or one sex to the other. And really, we're talking about biological sex when we're talking. At, the, the, the terms have gotten to the point where they're not interchangeable in some people's minds. They, they would say and, and that gender is a concept. And there's some truth to that, but gender has always been a concept that matches biological sex. And when we begin to mess with that, um, I believe that's when we run into all these kind of problems. And look, whether or not you agree, which I don't agree with the transgender movement or ideology, I certainly don't think that minors should be making life-altering decisions that are 99.9% .9 irreversible. And so I, we need a law in South Carolina. Now, the question is always going to be, well, give us the evidence that any of this is going on. And I, I've, I've never understood that argument. When you see a trend, when you know that this is a thing that happens in other places, why would we sit back? And, and that's, a, that's a particularly a, a, the idea of government, that you, your government would sit back and do nothing, wait until the problem is a, a big problem, um, and then do something to curb it. Does it not make more sense that if you see something that's coming, you prepare for it, you uh, create a template for it, you create a legal atmosphere that will prevent it if it's something that's detrimental, particularly to children? And that's why I don't understand the argument. Well, you've got to, you've got to point to me all these cases in South Carolina. No, I don't think so. I think you just need to look at the national mood, uh, what's going on in other states, and know that whether and, – and by the way, I'm, I'm sure this is – well, let me back up. I'm not 100% sure that it's going on in South Carolina. I know that uh, Senator Kimbrell uh, from Spartanburg was able to put a proviso in the budget that was going to cut money out for a program that was essentially a transgender program in the state. But it, it – on, on the other hand, it, it doesn't – the bottom line to me is it doesn't matter that much if it's happening. Um, and it, it, it matters more, of course, if it's already happening. But that shouldn't be the, the baseline for whether or not we're going to make a decision about protecting children. Uh, you don't want to have any children to go through this or to be in the process of gender transition surgery if we can prevent that from happening, how much better instead of having to step in and perhaps stop it from happening. So anyway, that bill is coming out of the House, and it's going over to the Senate. And, of course, it's going to be a, slow, a much slower process over there. Um, 
but we'll, you know, kind of, I, I think it will pass. I think they've got the votes in the Senate. I think it'll be closer um, than it was in the House. There are a lot of conservatives in the House. The conservatives in the House don't always get along in South Carolina. They don't always agree, but there are a lot of them over there. So getting a vote like this through after you wade through all the amendments that the opposition puts up um, is not a heavy lift in the House. In the Senate, you have more moderates in, in, that are Republicans, and you've got a supermajority, but you've got a window of about where about four or five senators, when you're talking about a filibuster, can hold up legislation. And I just don't know the temperature right now in the Senate well enough to be able to tell you if that's going to happen with this bill or not. But we'll know within the next few weeks, next week or so. Um, something else that happened in South Carolina yesterday, Congressman Jeff Duncan has said that he's not going to run for re-election. Um, and I don't think that's a tremendous surprise, considering all the things that came out uh, about his relationship with his wife, um, the allegations of, of adultery for a number of years that have been raised for Congressman Duncan. And I think this was a bigger problem for him because, I mean, you've got – we as a country have kind of in some ways moved on from the moral implications of our leaders. Now, I think this is a bad thing. I think our leaders should be moral in their lifestyle, in their behavior. Should they be perfect? Well, there was only one perfect man, um, you know, and, and God makes us perfect or makes us whole when we accept the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ and the blood is applied to our life, then our sins are forgiven. But that, so there, there's nobody that's going to be perfect, but at the same time, um, it, it is the standard that you hold and the decisions that you make morally day by day that I think indicates where your character is. And there are a lot of questions about Representative Duncan's character, primarily because he spent the last 10, 12 years touting the values of faith, family, and freedom. And, you know, this episode in his life has called into question whether those things were real for him. And that matters to enough voters in Congressman Duncan's district to cause him to, to sit down, evaluate, and, and another thing that I hope is going on here is that in his statement saying that he was not going to run, he said that he was having personal problems in his family, and he wanted to work on those. And I pray that that's the case. And as, as believers, I think we all need to be in prayer about that. I mean, what we should want to see is reconciliation between Congressman Duncan and his wife. We want to see that family preserved. What we would like to see is the truth being spoken um, about sin and confession and then forgiveness being applied and then the restoration of a relationship. That's, that's what following Jesus Christ and being obedient to the Scripture and surrendering your life to the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what that's all about. It's about change. Every one of us have the potential to be world-class sinners. I mean, apart from the grace of God and the the forgiveness that comes through the cross, we are. We are, in, in our heart, we are world-class sinners. It's the change of heart that comes through salvation 
Um, it's the new, you know, the old things that are that are passed away, the all the all things that are made new, as the scripture says, as Paul wrote, those things, that's the miracle of salvation. And we should want to see that kind of a transformation, those things happening in the lives of our leaders. Because sin that is is hidden and, and it, it never comes, it's never confessed to God. Um, I mean, it, 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 it just creates all these problems, even for leaders that are doing, at least on the surface, a good job. When you look at Congressman Duncan, he was considered to be one of the most conservative members of the House. But it was, it, 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 the, then he would stand on a platform and proclaim the strength of his faith in his marriage. And yet at the same time, you had um, all this other activity allegedly going on. I mean, it, it, you know, we, we, we give room for the fact that this is something that's, that's been revealed that hasn't been thoroughly vetted. But pretty much, um, it, you know, Congressman Duncan has, has now acknowledged at least that there are personal problems that need to be addressed. And so our job as believers now, when it comes to this situation, to me, is to be in prayer for them, prayer for him, prayer for his marriage, um, prayer for just his restoration um, of all the way around um, of reconciliation, reconciliation to God, forgiveness, and the restoration of his marriage. Now, as far as the seat is concerned, uh, Senator Cash from here in South Carolina has pretty much all but made it clear that he's going to run for that seat. And the people that I talk to that know that district and know that area believe that he would be hard to beat because he's uh, Senator Cash is is very popular. He's very conservative. Um, he has a good reputation there, and high name recognition. In fact, when that seat it, it was a battle between uh, Senator Cash and and uh, and Jeff Duncan to to get that seat to begin with. So um, Senator Cash, Richard Cash, is going to have a leg up. There may be some others who file. Um, I don't know. They're going to have to assess and decide if they can take on Senator Cash and have a chance of winning, get the support they need, raise the money, all of that that happens in politics. But it, it, it right now it appears that it would be uh, Senator Cash would have the, definitely the advantage there. All right, um, let's move on and talk about some national things that have been going on. Um, one of the things that's been fascinating about this primary season is the Democrats' primary problem. And I've, I've talked a little bit about this, and we're going to meld into this some polling numbers that are coming out of New Hampshire and South Carolina that affect the Republican side of the race. But I want to talk about the Democrats' primary problem um, and because it reveals something that we need to know about how the how the progressives in the Democrat Party, at least, see diversity, and what what they say about it, and then what they do about it are two very different things. And what they they how they define diversity that actually leaves out a good part of the population. I mean, if you're going to be diverse, it seems to me that that means that you care about everybody equally. Um, and the behavior of the Democrat Party when it comes to New Hampshire and Iowa and their primary problem there doesn't really line up with that idea of diversity. Uh, just as Republicans are wrapping up in Iowa and moving on to New Hampshire and South Carolina, Democrats in New Hampshire 
are trying to navigate the primary nightmare that the DNC created by demoting New Hampshire and promoting South Carolina as the first official Democrat primary. Votes cast for Democrats next, next Tuesday in New Hampshire won't count for anything except in the minds of the people. In other words, the votes won't be counted, but you can count on this. They will count. And the reason, the whole reason that this happened, the whole reason that uh, New Hampshire got demoted was that Biden was humiliated in New Hampshire in 2020 when he received only 8% of the vote. So he hurried off to South Carolina, where James Clyburn was waiting to help turn out the black vote, giving Biden a win that propelled him to the Democrat nomination. Now, I'm not minimizing the importance of the black vote. The black vote is very important in the Democrat Party because they tend to vote not up to upwards of 93% Democrat, and the African-American population in South Carolina is high, certainly higher than it is in New Hampshire or Iowa. So the DNC essentially didn't want a repeat of 2020, so that's why they did this. But in New Hampshire, they decided to go ahead and hold their primary. But it's not official. It's not going to count for anything. So Biden is not on the ballot there because the votes won't count. But his absence has opened the door for Dean Phillips, who's trying to wrestle the nomination away from Biden. Now, we've heard a lot about Kennedy, of course, and his uh, sort of, of course, he got out of the Democrat Party because he, he realized he was going to have to run as an independent if he was going to make any headway. And we haven't heard a whole lot about him lately because he's not on the ballot in, I think, a majority of states yet. And, and so we don't know the scope of his uh, we know that he was polling at one time at about 20%, which would be uh, about where, I mean, if, if you're a third-party candidate and you get 20% like Ross Perot, um, it can be a thunderbolt. If you remember, Ross Perot was responsible for part of the reason that we got Bill Clinton for eight years uh, because he cut into George H.W. Bush's numbers uh, to a point that it, it gave Clinton an advantage. Now, that's not the only reason George H.W. Bush lost. I mean, we all remember the read my lips, no new taxes, all of that, the betrayal that Republicans felt and the lack of enthusiasm they had to go out and vote for him, and that opened the door for Clinton as well. But 20%, um, that, that's a genuine threat, particularly when you're talking about a sitting president. But Phillips in New Hampshire is polling at around 25%. Now, when I said 20%, of course, with Ross Pro, we're talking nationally. But in New Hampshire, if Phillips was to get somewhere between 25 to 30 percent of the vote, even though it didn't count, I mean, Biden's surrogates and, and um, you know, campaign folks are going to come out and they're all going to say, well, what do you expect? Biden wasn't on the ballot. He didn't really campaign there. Well, whether he is or not, the votes that are cast are going to be counted. And if, and if Phillips ends up with a quarter of the vote against a sitting president, uh, that's going to be another embarrassment. So, to do away with that or to deal with the potential of that embarrassment, there's an organized write-in campaign in New Hampshire that hopes to garner enough votes for Biden to avoid the embarrassment. Uh, when diversity is your major motivator, it creates problems because of the people you have to exclude in order to be seen as being diverse. Now, that may sound strange. You're excluding people in order to to be diverse. That's the problem with this. One of the reasons the DNC gave for excluding Iowa and New Hampshire is that their populations don't reflect the Democrat Party. In other words, there are not enough minorities and progressives who traditionally vote Democrat in those states, 
So instead of solving the problem by becoming more engaged in those states, winning voters through the strength of your ideas, you just bypass those states by implying that there must be some kind of racism going on because there are not enough minorities to support Democrats. Or you bypass those states because you say, well, ideologically, there are not enough progressives. And our arguments are not persuasive to be able to bring people over. So we just need to move on and let those states flounder. You know, sound ideas and solid common sense poly policy positions should attract voters of all ethnic backgrounds. And I think if you don't believe that, then you've got a problem with placing race above sound ideas and solid common sense policy positions. You're saying that those things can't attract a, a minority or a, a group of whatever group of people that you're talking about, and, and that's dissing those people. I mean, it's, it's treating them with disrespect. So, and, and, by, and by bypassing Iowa and New Hampshire, to me, that shows two things about the Biden campaign and the Democrat Party. First, they lacked the sound ideas to draw people to their candidate. And second, even if they had sound ideas and common sense policy positions, their candidate can't effectively communicate those ideas. And since winning people over to your way of thinking is the hard work of politics, I mean, that's where, you know, that's why a lot of people talk about the elbow grease, the door-to-door, -door, the phone calling, all of that. Those are people trying to win people over through the power of ideas. So it's easier to stack the deck by reshuffling the primaries than it is to come up with a game-changing policy position that garners broad-based support. And of course, because progressives are running the Democrat Party, they can't come up with broad-based support policies because the progressives won't allow that. Uh, they, it, it, they, they want a narrow focus on an ideology that primarily runs counter to the mainstream of American thought. And so they, get, they, they don't have the, these positions that they can stake out that are likely to draw in a number of voters in states like New Hampshire and Iowa. So the Biden administration accuses Trump, of course, and all Republicans of disenfranchising, disenfranchising rather, minority voters but here we have the DNC with President Biden's blessing disenfranchising two states because they don't have enough minorities and progressives to give their candidate a win. Now, I, some of you are saying, well, now, wait a minute. Republicans do some of the same thing. They do, but it's a little bit different. And, I, and I'll explain. To be fair, when you look at the Republican Party, I'm, I'm sure, for example, Nikki Haley's glad to be out of Iowa and in New Hampshire because there weren't enough moderates in Iowa to support her, and there's an abundant supply in New Hampshire. DeSantis was betting on conservative evangelical support to stave off Nikki Haley and take second place in Iowa, but he's polling at about 6% in New Hampshire compared, compared to Nikki Haley, who's at 34%, and former President Trump, who is now at 50%. Now, that's according to the Boston Globe, Suffolk University, NBC poll. Now, there's an outlier poll out there. If you... You, you look at some of the headlines, the, there are people screaming about the American Research Group poll that shows Haley and Trump tied at 40%. But that's an outlier. Uh, I don't. If you look at the average, Trump is polling anywhere from 8% to double digits ahead of Haley, and in some polls, more than that. So 
DeSantis isn't, here, here's the thing, DeSantis is not ignoring New Hampshire. He didn't just bypass it, but he's, and he is running hard in South Carolina where he's polling at about 12.1%. Right now, Haley's at 24, 24.9%, and Trump is at 54.8% in the, in the polling averages. But here's the difference between how Democrats and Republicans approach the electorate. If you're not all in for Biden, then Democrats know he can't persuade you, so they just sidestep you, i.e. Iowa and New Hampshire. Republicans acknowledge the reality of demographics and philosophical shifts in politics in certain parts of the country, but they show up and make an argument. And that's the way politics is supposed to work. Their names go on the ballot. They face the voters. They give everyone a choice. Now, I ask you, which party sounds more like that they care about diversity? Is it the party that bypasses the wishes of voters if there are not enough of them who look or think like their party? Or is it the party that stands up and makes the case to all voters in every primary? My argument is that that would be the party that cares most about diversity, real diversity. By the way, Dean Phillips is not a Joe Manchin, okay? If you're thinking, when you start thinking about and, and I know Republicans don't want to get too deep into what's going on on the Democrat side of things, but I think we need to understand the dynamic over there a little bit. D Joe Manchin is um, a conservative Democrat. He's still a Democrat, but he's a conservative. And if he were to run as a third-party candidate, he would pull more centrist um, conservatives than he would anybody else. That's not true for Dean Phillips. Um, now, he's also not a younger version of Joe Biden. He's somewhere in the middle politically. His campaign is being run by Andrew Yang's 2020 staff, if that tells you anything. It, if you go back and look at Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang was trying to carve out a middle-of-the-road lane for himself within the Democrat Party. Now, he was hoping to get some independents and others to come over and support him, but his, his primary goal was to kind of be in, the middle guy in the Democrat Party it, and then hope that he had enough independence to make him a viable candidate. And Dean Phillips is kind of running the same playbook. Uh, it didn't work for Andrew Yang. I don't know why Phillips thinks it's going to work for him. But this week, um, Dean Phillips' super PAC did get a million dollars from billionaire Bill Ackman, who, uh, Ackerman, rather, who appeared with Phillips and Elon Musk on an X Spaces broadcast. So... Um, he's starting to get a little bit of attention, maybe not a whole lot of traction yet, but some attention. Bottom line, if he gets 25 to 30% of the vote in New Hampshire and the write-in campaign for Biden looks weak, uh, that's going to be the story. And in fact, they're, they're having this write-in campaign uh, in order to keep Biden from being embarrassed. Uh, because even though his name's not on the ballot, they don't want New Hampshire news to come out about the, the Democrat primary where, where Biden is not mentioned and you get Dean Phillips with enough of the vote to be an embarrassment. So here's, here's a question. Mainstream media outlets who think Biden is a weak candidate and should be replaced will run that story if it comes out that Phillips ends up with 25 to 30 percent. Outlets that are all in for Biden because he's all the Democrats have are going to boot that story. Why? Uh, well, like I said, because it, it's an embarrassment. We go back to the fact that it would be an embarrassment um, for, by, or for Phillips to get that much of the vote. All right. Um, 
Let's turn to the question of a government shutdown on Friday. But we, we need a little bit of music here as some background. So here we go. Okay. When last we looked in to the House, which is now the soap opera of the United States Congress, we saw Senator Chuck Schumer demanding that Speaker Michael Johnson spurn his conservative base and join the Democrats in spending more money to get a budget deal. Now it's put up or shut up time because the government runs out of money for a lot of its operations this Friday. So where do things stand? Well, at the moment, spurned conservatives have moved out of Johnson's part of the House, and they're threatening a divorce. So it looks like we may have another budget extension, better known as a continuing resolution that pushes the deadline to March to give more time for Speaker Johnson and his spurned conservatives to enter into counseling. Uh, but when you listen to the Freedom Caucus chairman, Bob Good, by the way, who was speaking to Fox News this past week, um, it sounds like it's going to take a lot of counseling. Also, secure the border as a condition of continuing to fund this government. Why would we give more money, billions of dollars for that matter, to a Department of Homeland Security that is facilitating the border invasion that is literally destroying the country? So he's the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, and that's enough votes right there that if Republicans stick together and Democrats stick together, could scuttle a continuing resolution movement. So the question becomes, will Johnson be able to woo the Freedom Caucus to vote for a continuing resolution? Will moderate Democrats in the House save Johnson by voting um, in favor of the uh, continuing resolution and then save him again from a motion to, va to vacate the chair? Now, when I'm saying again, I'm saying again as in um, save him like they would save the continuing resolution. Uh, you'll have to tune in next week to find out as the government burns. Okay. Um, you know, I, I really wish we could work things out better. I, you've got people that get elected to office and they have a responsibility to stand for the right things, but also to work together with those that they disagree with in order to have a functional government. And look, I'm not one who thinks that we should run away totally from a government shutdown. I don't think that uh, that should be the re that we should cave every time Democrats wave the government shutdown flag. But I'm also not someone who thinks that it helps a party politically when we know that the way that the media is going to portray this. And yes, the Republican base gets it for the most part, but it's not the Republican base that we have to have in order to win national elections and to win down-ballot seats in Congress, um, in the House, and the Senate. No, it's we're, we're going to have to win people. We are so polarized between Democrats and Republicans that Republicans, in order to be successful, are going to have to win some independents. And I just think people that don't pay attention to this all the time, they only their headline, re headline readers or soundbite listeners, it, it ends up looking bad if the Republican Party is constantly trying to get rid of, it, rid of its leadership because they don't like the decisions that are made. And that is good. That, that looks good for the conservatives in the party, in the Republican Party. But I think it looks like chaos and confusion to people that we need in the general election, not only for the, the White House, 
but also for down down ballot um, issues. So I hope that they're able to work this out. Look, um, Michael Johnson, if if he goes along with a continuing resolution, I think it's it's likely that Democrats will help pass that continuing resolution. Now, whether or not they follow up by keeping Johnson as speaker, I mean, why would they do that? I mean, I, I, I get it. If, if they're concerned about the, the party, I mean, if, I mean they're, excuse me, they're concerned about the country um, and they don't want the House to become dysfunctional again, I could see that. But why would you rescue uh, Republicans from making another leadership change and plunging the House into chaos when I think that that presents a bad face to people, again, that we need to come and vote Republican when we get to the general election. So we'll see. I mean, all all that's going to get worked out one way or the other um, here over the next few days. All right. um, Marco Rubio has come out with a three-point strategy to sort of shift the debate within the pro-life community so that the message is clearer and we start winning some of these arguments since Roe versus Wade was overturned. One of the real um, weird things, really, that's happened since Roe went away is that we've seen a string of pro-life losses in states that have had an opportunity to vote on constitutional amendments one way or the other in their states as it affects abortion. But all of those have, have turned on the side of those who are pro-abortion. And part of the reason is the resources of Planned Parenthood. I mean, they have just a, a bottomless checking account. They can spend billions of dollars to promote their ideas and to reach people. And, um, and, and they've changed the language. And I've, I've, always, I've always said that, you know, if you control the language in a political debate, you get to define the terms. That puts you way ahead. And so they've moved on from pro-choice to pro-women's health, to and they've, they've coined the phrase that abortion is health care. They've taken a negative term and flipped it into a positive term in the way that they use language. Now, this is, don't misunderstand me. I'm not agreeing with any of this. I'm not saying that any of this is right. I'm just saying that that's what the left has done, and so far it's been effective in these states. And so they, they also... Um, you know, referred to women's freedom, not pro-choice for women, but pro-women's rights, pro-freedom. And Planned Parenthood tested all these phrases. I mean, they were able to determine that these are the things that they need to say in order to sway people over to their side. And those of us that are pro-life, we've kind of been slow in coming up with a response. So, Here's Marco Rubio of Florida, Senator Rubio, has a plan uh, for the Republican Party and its message on abortion post-Roe. And here's what he said. He said, first, we need to develop and fight for a compassionate pro-family agenda that counters caricatures of our beliefs and makes life easier for mothers and their children. Now, I agree with that part. I mean, I, I agree that in order to regain some momentum that conservatives that have focused solely on the baby in the womb have got. Now we, we haven't focused solely on the baby in in the womb in our, in the way that we carry out the way that we live a pro-life 
um, lifestyle. I mean, we've always cared about the mother. We've always provided resources for the mother and for the family. I mean, if you look at crisis pregnancy centers in South Carolina, they're chief among nonprofits who are having an impact on families and on women and supplying women with what they need. It, it, in walking with these women through a very difficult decision and then helping them as they make the decision for life, there are consequences that come with that, that these women face, and these pro-life pregnancy centers are helping these women, a lot of churches helping these women to navigate those things so that it's easier to be pro-life when you've got people caring about all of your needs. So I agree that this is something that, that is important. Um, developing a compassionate pro-family agenda, talking about the family, talking about why children matter to the family and why mothers and, and fathers in the home raising those children give them the best opportunity for success in life. So second, he says, we need to put Democrats on the defensive about their extreme support for abortion. I think that's true. Um, I, I, you know, people need to know. And Democrats deny this, and a lot of times their denials are what get the headlines, but it's absolutely true that Democrats, in most cases, want abortion available all the way up through the ninth month, all the way up through the point where the baby's in the birth canal. I mean, that, and that's been made clear. Now, Democrats will deny that. They'll say, no, 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 but they're a long way away from what was being said during the Clinton years, where, and, and somewhat at the beginning of the Obama years, when the idea was we want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. That's not the case anymore. They want abortion to be, um, I mean, it, it, the safe part can be sacrificed. They certainly don't want it to be rare. They want it to be legal at every point along the spectrum when it comes to having a baby. And that's an extreme position. The vast majority of Americans are not there. That's not what they think when they think about um, abortion. They, they think about early abortion. So pointing out the Democrats' position on this is extreme um, and making sure that we continue to say that and to present the evidence that backs that up, I think that's incredibly important. Uh, the third thing, we need to tell the truth about what abortion is, the taking of innocent life and advocate limits to the practice. Now, this is, this is where I have a little bit of a disagreement. I'll talk about the disagreement in a minute. But the agreement is we need to tell the truth about abortion. But we can't tell the truth about abortion and then come back and say we're advocating limits to the practice. If what we believe about abortion is that the ab an abortion is taking a human life, then limiting abortion still allows the taking of human life. And I think we need to be clear about that. If we, we can't say that it's the taking of a human life and then come back and say, well, it is, um, but we'll, we'll agree to limits on it. Now, we may have to agree to, a limits, to limits as opposed to abolishing abortion temporarily, but because you don't, I, I mean, for me, I want to be sure that we protect legally as many babies as in, the, in the womb as we can. So we have to change the political environment. Sometimes you've got to win the first two arguments politically before you can fully assert the third, third argument. But you don't win the third argument by giving ground on it.
I mean, we, we say, we should continue to say all the time that life begins at conception, that life is precious because it's created in the image of God, and that we have intrinsic value. That is, we don't have to have external things give value to life because life is intrinsically value because of the Creator. We are made in the image of God, and that is what gives life its primary value, the fact that we're related to the Creator. Uh, the senator told the Daily Signal, by the way, this is in Daily Signal. This is where all of this is coming from, this story. The, signal, uh, the, the senator told the Daily Signal that although the abortion landscape may have shifted, the stakes have not. Quote, our mission remains unchanged, building a nation where every life is cherished and protected. And he went on to say, we must be compassionate and stand with families in crisis, offering support, not judgment, for every life that is brought into the world and dismantling the false choice between motherhood and opportunity. That's absolutely important. I mean, women need to see that babies are a blessing. Having a baby, building a family, that's a blessing from God. And there are plenty of women who are successful and have great careers who are also mothers and opportunities to help uh, those mothers be successful. Republicans should be all about that. Now, it would be great if, I, I mean, if um, part of the decision that gets made in the middle of this is that women decide that being at home and raising their family is more important than being in the workforce. And women who make that choice should be 100% supported in that choice, in that decision, and not treated as if they've made some kind of compromise that belittles them as women. And women who have a career but focus on their family, that is, they don't relegate their family to some type of second-tier status, but that they actually are able to go out and have a job and work in the business community or wherever they choose to work and still have a focus on their family, to coin the name of a very popular program from decades ago, Focus on Family. I mean, if they can still do that, I think. Of course, and Focus on Family is still around, just different host. Um, so it, it, Rubio goes on to say, he says, we will expose the truth about abortion from the horrors of late-term abortion to the lack of basic protections for the most vulnerable, Finally, we'll rely on common sense, finding areas where even those who disagree can stand together for the sanctity of life. Every life saved, every family supported, every law rewritten is another step toward a future where every beating heart finds refuge in the law and compassion in our hearts. And I think the last part of that is really important. Both of those things have to be on the table, not just the law. The law needs to be strengthened. In South Carolina, we need a stronger law than the heartbeat bill. The heartbeat bill is all we could get politically at the time that we got it. But we need to do more. And that's why, as I, as I told you, I was happy to hear uh, Speaker Merle Smith at a, a First Monday event back at the beginning of the month talking about that his hope was to see the Human Life Protection Act come up again that would protect life from conception in the womb. And I think that's what we should be doing because, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad 
that we have six weeks heart, when a heartbeat is detected, that's greatly limiting the number of abortions. But that goes back to what I said earlier. When Rubio says that it, it's okay for us to work toward the limiting of abortions, he needs to add to that. He needs to say we work toward limiting abortions in political environments where that is all that's possible. But we don't give up there. We come back and we try to change the political environment by through the election process where we elect more pro-choice legislators who understand the fundamental truth that life is valuable because it's created in the image of God, and then we're able politically, through the law, to protect more babies in the womb. And I think all of those things need to be going on at the same time. The main thing we need right now is for the pro-life community just to remain engaged because so many people, I, I, it fascinates me, I mean, we've got 24-hour news channels, 24-hour news cycles, and yet still we are in a situation where, you know, people think that because Roe versus Wade was overturned that we're done here, that we've won the abortion debate. Now, I think there's fewer and fewer people, uh, thankfully, I think everybody's beginning to embrace the fact that this simply got shifted to a statewide, um, you know, conversation and that we have to win state by state by state, and we have to pay attention to the political environment in those states and how it has to change in order to win. But it's, there are still some people who would say, well, Roe versus Wade, we've done our, our job. Now we can go back and we don't, we don't have to pay attention to this anymore. Well, yeah, re really, we do. All right, here's a story from the Daily Wire that I thought you would find interesting today. I... The White House is doubling down on a statement that blames Texas for drowned migrants. Now, I'm just going to go through this story because you've probably heard the original story that there were three uh, immigrants that were trying to enter the country illegally that drowned. And the blame that came out of the White House was against Texas because Texas was not allowing Border Patrol to go in this particular area, hindered the Border Patrol from getting there. And if the Border Patrol had been on the site, they could have rescued them. So therefore, Texas is responsible for these deaths. Well, the White House doubled down Wednesday on a statement blaming Texas for the drowning deaths of three uh, migrants, one woman, two children, despite a Department of Justice filing that undermined the claim. I mean, the Department of Justice came out and said that, and clarified and said, Texas didn't have anything to do with this. Former White House Press Secretary Corrine, I'm sorry, not former, current White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre balked at the questions from Fox News correspondent uh, Jack Hugh Heinrich, um, hope I'm pronouncing his first name right, his or her, pivoting when presented with the DOJ's version of events to suggest that it was rude to ask questions when three people were dead. What? what? Well, is it not rude to take the death of three people and use it for a political statement, particularly when the statement that you're making is not true? How respectful is that to the death of three, of three people? Here's the quote. Uh, question, will the administration then amend its separate statement that implied that Texas officials were responsible for the deaths of those three migrants when, in fact, they had nothing to do with it? They had already been dead for an hour, the people who died, tragically died that, uh, for an hour by the time Mexico told anyone in the U.S. about it, and the administration admitted as much in their court filing. That's the way Heinrich began. 
Quote, they acknowledged that in their court filing that the statement from the White House implies that Texas was responsible and a number of outlets were forced to issue corrections and editor's notes because of that White House statement. Will the White House amend the statement? Now, Corinne Jean-Pierre, when she doesn't want to answer a particularly pesky question, she has a pesky way of just ignoring it. Here's from Daily Wire. Here's what, uh, this is their clip from X what this sounded like. Will the administration then amend its separate statement um, that imply that Texas officials were responsible for the deaths of three migrants um, when, in fact, they had nothing to do with it? They had already been dead for an hour by the time Mexico told uh, anyone in the U.S. about it. And the administration admitted as much in their court filing. They, they acknowledged that in their court filing, but the statement from the White House implies that Texas was responsible and a number of outlets were forced to issue corrections and editor's notes because of that White House statement. So will the White House amend that statement? So let's be sensitive here. Three people died. Three migrants died. Two children and a woman. That was devastating. Devastating situation, heartbreaking situation. So let's be really mindful of what we're talking about here. No question about that. She's exactly right. I don't think anybody has suggested that it wasn't a heartbreaking situation. I don't think anyone has said, I, I mean, I, maybe on some sites or where uh, the crazies live that are out there, maybe somebody has said, well, it, it, it serves them right or something like that. But when you're talking about, a per, if, if we're, as Christians, when we're talking about being made in the image of God, whether we're talking about people in the womb or uh, people in a tragic situation like this who lose their life, yes, they were risking their lives, the lives, they, they made that decision to do that, but when they... The, the desperation or the desire that drove them to that, um, it, it should not cause us to look at that and be non, not compassionate. Of course we're compassionate. People, two children and an adult died uh, trying to get into this country. And so this is, a, this is totally changing the subject from the fact that the White House put out false information. I want to take a step back and... Uh, and um just as you're talking about our statement, uh, look, as I, as I mentioned, a woman and two children died. They drowned near Eagle Pass, which is, as I said, devastating, and that Texas officials blocked Border Patrol from access, accessing the area. That's what was happening at that time. Uh, our statement is consistent with DOJ's filing. As the DOJ filing said, there was an ongoing emergency situation that Border Patrol was blocked from accessing. There were other migrants in the in the water as well. But I'm just saying there was separate. There was an ongoing. The White House statement implies it says the White House statement says that Texas officials blocked U.S. Border Patrol from attempting to provide emergency assistance. To. There were other there were other migrants in the water. Then why as wasn't well. that included in the there statement? Were other migrants in the water. That, that, that that's what you were our, referring to. Our statement is this, is very very much consistent with DOJ filing. That absolutely is not true. Their statement is not consistent uh, because, as you just heard, they acknowledged in their court filing that the statement from the White House implies that Texas was responsible, and then. Uh, Heinrich, Heinrich added, and a number of outlets were forced to issue corrections and editor's notes because of, the, of what the White House statement said. Uh, there was no attempt to answer the direct question. Um, it, there was kind of a scolding going on here for the nature of the question. So we, we, we uh, and, and again, I don't know anybody that is suggesting, particularly, I mean, 
conservatives, anybody, that we shouldn't be mindful that it was a heartbreaking, devastating situation. And then she, of course, you heard, she went on to talk about the overall situation, but she continued to imply that Texas was in the wrong. Um, and then she said that their statement was consistent with the G DOJ's filing. And that's not true. Uh, it, it isn't, because the DOJ's filing pointed out that, as, as we said at the beginning, they, the, the, border, the Border Patrol being there, the fact that there were other people in the water, the Border Patrol was not prevented because the Border Patrol did not know that this had happened until they were informed by Mexico an hour after it had happened. And this is, I, I mean, the disingenuous nature of the Biden administration here and the, its willingness to, you, if, if you want to talk about disaster and tragedy and all of that, the willingness of the Biden administration to use this in a false way, this heartbreaking incident, in a way to paint Texas politically in a bad light, how, how disrespectful is that to the people who, who died and their families? And how disrespectful to the people of Texas to try to paint them as being uncaring about a tragedy when the truth is the tragedy happened and it was an hour or so before the, the Border Patrol had any idea. The picture, uh, you have a picture painted in people's minds of the Border Patrol standing there, seeing these people in distress, and the, the state of Texas preventing these Border Patrol agents from going into the water to rescue them. And nothing could be further from the truth. And it appears to me from this that the White House doesn't care how far from the truth they get as long as the point that they make is politically damaging to the opposition. And they're willing to even allow a tragic situation like this to be part of that strategy. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. I hope you've enjoyed the program, and I hope you'll join me again tomorrow. Don't forget, every morning, 7.30 to 8.30 on YouTube and Facebook, I'm here live. Uh, this program will be uploaded. I'm going to sit here and do it. I don't have to go anywhere. I'm going to sit here and upload the program, so it'll be available as a podcast coming up in, ooh, about 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, please pass the word along if you enjoy the program. Probably some other people will enjoy it, too. So talk about it and help me promote it. God bless you. Have a great day. See you in the morning.